Hello. Welcome to Marysville Church of Christ. This Holy Week, we're excited to present a series of lessons entitled Insurgency, in which we follow Jesus. From Jericho to Jerusalem, Gabbatha to Golgotha, and the stone pavement to the Rolling Stone. I'm glad you're doing Holy Week with us. As we start this Palm Sunday, discussing the triumphal entry, I want us to be very clear of one central point that we're going to come back to over and over again. Jesus is dangerous. He is more deadly than any weapon that's ever been constructed. He is more intoxicating than the strongest of wines. He is more transformative than any natural disaster. Jesus Christ is dangerous. This entire story of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem is so interesting because it parallels a very similar story. In fact, the holiday that's happening in the time of the triumphal entry, the Passover, is very similar to this event. The original Passover inaugurated a series of events called the Exodus, in which a man named Moses liberated an oppressed people, delivering them from bondage and marching them to the promised land. And so likewise, Jesus begins a similar march of liberated people towards the promised land. Except the difference between Moses and Jesus was that Moses was bringing a military force to overthrow and to take over a promised land. Jesus was leading an invasion, an insurgency, to take it back. The story begins in Mark chapter 10, as Jesus and his apostles begin a slow journey to Jerusalem. And it's during this journey that the apostles notice a shift. Jesus' language about the kingdom of God becomes more imminent. There is a sense of anticipation dripping on every word that he's saying. Every thought, every idea, every parable seems to be more and more direct until eventually it says that the apostles were amazed but the people that followed became afraid. They realized that the tides of history were changing as this new Moses, Jesus, was leading a new exodus, an invasion to take back the promised land. And what is so fascinating is Jesus' first stop in Luke 19 along this exodus is the same stop of the first exodus. Jericho. And like Moses, Jesus found a Rahab and a man named Zacchaeus. But the difference between Moses, Joshua, and Jesus is when Joshua led the armies out of Jericho, he left rubble and death and destruction behind. When Jesus left Jericho, he left healing and grace in his rearview mirror, he wasn't seeing Achan pillaging what was left of a broken people, but Bartimaeus dancing in the street with his sight recovered. 
He didn't look back and see the blood of the innocent on the ground. No. What he saw was tears of joy from the mute that could now speak, the deaf that could now hear, the lost that had been found. Jesus' journey from Jericho to Jerusalem was wrought with stops along the way as he went place to place healing, teaching, and caring, all the while his army, his invasion force growing in number and in magnitude. But the followers of Jesus' army weren't armor-clad Roman legionaries known for their brutality and their strength. They weren't armed to the hilt with swords or spears or slings or bows. They were twelve children. They were prostitutes. They were tax collectors. They were sinners. They were the lepers, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the slaves. And this invasion force, every step it took towards Jerusalem, grew in passion and fervor. Until right on top of the Mount of Olives, as Jesus is overlooking the city of Jerusalem, the emotion of the moment is too much. And our Savior bursts into tears. And he weeps. We don't exactly have all the reasons why he wept. But many a king on their coronation day finds the emotion of the moment overwhelming. And what a coronation day he was about to have. He begins by deciding how he wants to enter into the city. But unlike the military generals or politicians or kings of their day, he decided not to ride in on a white horse. He didn't need a, a war-tested stallion to be his steed. He chose a donkey. But not just a donkey, a baby donkey. And it didn't have a saddle because it wasn't supposed to be ridden. It wasn't elegant. It wasn't beautiful. So the apostles, to cover up some of its blemishes, its ridiculousness, they throw their coats on it. And Jesus mounts up and he begins his processional march into Jerusalem where he'll be coronated king and begin his invasion. But he was walking into the lion's den because the Passover every year is the biggest Jewish holiday of which over half a million Jews worldwide would have come to the city of Jerusalem. It was such a big deal, in fact, that Pontius Pilate himself, the Roman governor of Judea, came and made residence in Jerusalem, bringing with him battalions of soldiers to keep peace. It was such a big deal that King Herod brought extra guards himself, the king of the region. And even Caiaphas, the leader of the religious organizational structure of the Jews, was ready. Jesus was walking into the most dangerous place he could have possibly been on planet Earth to declare a message that was so dangerous that it was sure to incite war. He was going to declare himself king, to begin a revolution for a new kingdom. Jesus, organizing his troops, begins his march. 
When Pilate would have entered into Jerusalem, he would have been in the middle of a huge procession in which in front of him would have been legionary soldiers. Behind him would have been legionary soldiers. There would have been priests walking alongside him with huge bushels, handfuls of incense being burned, so much so that it would have been like a fog that would have emulated through the whole city, even the smell of the city reminding people who's arriving. There would have been loud trumpet call and fanfare. There would have been treasures galore. When Herod would have entered into Jerusalem, he would have been at the head of a huge chariot battalion, his armed guards surrounding every inch of him, armor clad in the shiniest, most polished armor most of these people had ever seen. And yet when Jesus entered, he was greeted not by cheers of a large crowd, but rather of confusion as people began to ask, who is this? The only people in the whole city who seemed to know what was going on was his army of children, prostitutes, and tax collectors who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He was not greeted with treasures. He did not have incense burning around him, just coats strewn on the ground in front of him, and branches pulled off of a tree. This scene would have been almost comical if it wasn't so powerful. A man two sizes too big for the foal he was, the colt he was riding on, his feet dragging in the sand as it wasn't even tall enough or strong enough to fully support him. Children running around, discombobulated and unorganized, shouting at the tops of their lungs. The most ill-reputed people in society behind him, chanting and cheering his name. Hosanna in the highest. Our king has arrived. And unlike most kings of the day, his anointment came soon later. His anointment, this, this important act of symbolizing a future king, happened not in a royal house. It didn't happen in front of legions of soldiers chanting. It didn't happen before a crowd growing in fervor and excitement. It wasn't given from one king to another, but rather Jesus was reclining at the table of a leper. And a woman came in with a small alabaster jar and broke it and poured what little nard was in there on his head. The anointment of the king. As we know the story goes, he was not crowned in front of a royal entourage. He was crowned with thorns by mocking and slapping Roman soldiers. Who spit upon him and pulled out his beard. He was not draped in the royal attire by servants on every hand but rather haphazardly was thrown a purple garment by a king, Herod, who had nothing but disdain for him. And when he was presented, anointed with this crown of thorns on his head, with his purple robe strewn about, he was, he was meet, met with shouts of crucify, crucify. The man 
who anointed him king would be the same man who killed him. This is the story of our king and our savior. But I want us to be clear that this teaches us almost all we need to know about Jesus Christ. He came and he stood at the convergence of power, where the political power represented in King Herod, the national power represented in Pontius Pilate, and the religious power represented in Caiaphas the high priest all met. He walked into that lion's den and proclaimed a new kingdom, a countercultural mission of love, a rebellion so strong that here we are 2,000 years later and we're still fighting in Jesus' insurgency. He wasn't afraid or intimidated by the political or national or religious opposition that he faced. And not only that, but he didn't have to be Caesar. He was a new type of king. A king that didn't need the, the mansion or the robe or the glory. He just needed. He just needed to love. And demonstrate his love. We serve a Christ who looked at the kingdoms of this world and saw a fallen state. He didn't work with the national regime. He didn't work with the politics of the day. He didn't work through the religion of the day. He said, we need something vastly different, vastly new. And so he implemented a new kingdom, as he would later tell Pilate, a kingdom not of this world. And he invited us all in to a kingdom without borders. A kingdom that has no devotion to national states or political agendas or even the religious traditions of man. No, we serve a king and a kingdom that is radical and revolutionary. It is scandalizing. It is different. And it's spearheaded by a man riding on a donkey with palm branches in front of him. A king who would rather die than kill. A king whose only bloodshed was his own. A king who stared at power in the face and didn't blink, even when it cost him his life. In so doing, he disarmed Satan of the greatest tool he had, the nations of the world, the religious agendas, and the politics of Herod. And in so doing, he disarmed the evils that still constrain us. As we sit here and we reflect on Palm Sunday, I want us to consider these words. I want us to consider this story of a radical, scandalizing king who came to throw everything in disarray, to overturn Caesar, and to teach us a new kingdom. As we go through Holy Week, we're going to explore some of these ideas more fully. We're going to talk about a lot of these elements. But if we don't begin with this point, we'll miss it all. My Jesus, your Jesus, is not of this world. Our church is not like any kingdom of this world. America will rise and America will fall, just as Rome did and Babylon before her. But the kingdom of God will never change. And as long as we hold to the ideals offered in that triumphal injury, ideals of 
gentleness and peace. As long as we hold to love and acceptance, as long as we hold to these tenets of meekness and gentleness, as long as we are comfortable looking and staring into power in the face and not blinking as we live our radically different, scandalous lives, then the kingdom of God is strong. And Christ's insurgency is strong. But the minute we lose sight of it, we, like Caiaphas, sell ourselves out. We, like Herod, sell ourselves out. We, like Pilate, sell ourselves out to Satan. And we fall victim to the national or political or religious fallacies that blinded them to the coming of the king. Behold your king, people, standing with a purple robe draped upon a bruised and battered body, with sweat and tears and blood mingling with the nard that dripped from his head, looking out upon the world that he was about to save. Behold your king, 